My guest today is George Magnus. He is an associate at the China Center at the Oxford University, a research associate at the School of Oriental and African Studies, and a former chief economist for UBS. He's here today to discuss his latest book, Red Flags, Why She's China is in Jeopardy. George, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Jim. Uh, let's, uh, let's start off, I guess, really with the, uh, uh, the title. Uh, I have a bad habit of telling authors that uh, their title is wrong, and here's what the title should actually be. Uh, I'm not going to say that to you, but I think some people here in the United States would wonder uh, if China is in jeopardy, because the message that we frequently hear, China is growing faster than the United States, uh, their leaders are geniuses, hoovering up all the data for their AI and they're spending gobs of money on these uh, emerging technologies and they're sort of doing everything right and it's the United States uh, uh, which is in jeopardy but obviously you're uh, making what to me seems like a contrarian case from an American perspective. Well it's a good point in fact my I suppose my knee-jerk reaction is to say that you shouldn't believe everything you read in the newspapers anyway and I'm sure we'll get on to a lot of this material um, uh, shortly, but I should explain really that the 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 subtitle of the book about why sees China is in jeopardy um, is not, uh, and I, I do explain this kind of very early on, is is not to predict uh, the downfall of uh, Xi Jinping or uh, the end of the Communist Party's uh, governance system in China, or anything uh, remotely connected with the collapse of uh, the, the country, uh, which, which others have uh, predicted in, in years gone by. Um, so I, I'm not really kind of going there. So the, the, the issue about jeopardy, really, is that I think policymaking and uh, policy in China is probably more brittle and therefore the survival of the incumbent uh, government, shall we say, is more brittle than sometimes we think it is. So we, we kind of believe nowadays, particularly after uh, the 19th Party Congress of the party that took place last October and the National uh, People's Congress last spring, sorry, the Congress in uh, 2017 and the National People's Congress in 2018, that Xi Jinping is omnipotent and all-powerful and all he has to do is kind of wave his um, fingers, you know, and kind of magical things will happen in China and everything uh, is hunky-dory. And I don't think that's quite right, actually. Um, and I'm sure we'll go into the reasons as to why not um, as we go through the um, through the cast. What, what, when, whenever I, this topic comes up, I, I sort of uh, refer to a... Uh, I th I, now, now I think it may have been during one of the midterm elections here in, in the United States. And to me, it sort of marks a change in sort of public perceptions of uh, of China rather than just being sort of this interesting success story that's adopted uh, at least some elements of market capitalism and is advancing and is on the path toward uh, democracy or on the path toward becoming South Korea and and, and all, all millions of people coming out of poverty, kind of a great story. And to me, one of the key moments uh, that I think maybe influenced perception in the United States, there was a, uh, a, a uh, some interest group they put a video on television. It was on YouTube. It was called the Ch I think it was called informally the Chinese Professor ad, and it showed uh, a future classroom in Beijing, maybe 20 years from now, where sort of an evil-looking Chinese professor was telling his students uh, about the fall of the United States, and they were laughing, and the U.S. had accumulated all this debt, and China was now the uh, China was now the superpower. And I think sort of that that it got it got a lot of page views, and you, you saw it all over the place. And to me, that sort of 
that's sort of marked a a change in how we perceive uh, China. Certainly, uh, certainly not the not not the only thing. And certainly, that's 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 the uh, there's a different view. Uh, today, where we see China as as a threat, and you know they're they're again, as I mentioned earlier, they're brilliant leaders. And in the book, you mention a number of red flags, and it's kind of an obvious place to, for me to go. But so I'm going to go there. Let's start working through a few of those red flags that you see. Uh, one uh, is debt. Uh, China has a lot of debt. Uh, some of the China bears always point to debt as being a real weakness of the Chinese economy. Uh, how do you see it? Well, I think it is, and I think um, it's uh, just by way of background, um, we should remember that um, at the time of the financial crisis back in 2007, 2008, China's uh, debt was around, its sort of non-financial debt, was about uh, 100, 120% of GDP, sort of unremarkable, really. Um, but if you fast forward, you know, 10 years to last year, end of last year, the um, uh, the level of debt to GDP is up at around three hundred percent, maybe a little bit more. Now, what, uh, so, what, what is that? Is that is that uh, is that you know government? What what kind of debt is that? Just all right. So this this includes uh, government debt, central government debt, mm -hmm. uh, which actually is a relatively small proportion of the total. But there's a lot of local and provincial government debt, and uh, corporate debt, so non non financial companies, state owned enterprises, private. Private companies as well, but actually private companies don't really own a lot of debt. So a lot of this is the state sector um, and households. Um, households actually have been the most recent. Um, uh, well, when I say the most recent debtors, I mean the, the rise in debt actually has been remarkable most recently because of households. So household debt to disposable income in China is now about 120%, which is bigger than it is in the United States. So um, what is remarkable about China's debt story is the speed with which it's accumulated. So that's in the space of about 10 or 11 years and uh, the levels to which it has risen. Now, we, we should also say that um, since the end of 2016, the beginning of 2017, China has been quite um, uh, rigorous, I would say, to a degree about trying to contain the growth of debt and trying to deleverage the economy. They know that this is a bad thing for the Chinese economy and for uh, the outlook for, for growth in the future. Therefore, they, they know that this has to be brought under control. Is that why we're seeing the economy slow now? Is that the main reason? It is the principal reason. So, I mean, a lot of people have said, well, you know, China is kind of buckling under the pressure of tariffs and the trade war. That's not strictly true, although it would be truer if President Trump's proposals, which are now the subject of negotiations uh, with China, um, if they did actually come to pass and the president did approve those tariffs that are now in the deep freeze, then I think China would actually have a very serious issue in 2019. 20. But most of the reason that the Chinese economy is um, has been slowing down and looks a little bit um, fragile, I would say, is is because of the impact of deleveraging policies and the 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 clampdown really on egregious forms of risk taking and financial behaviour, which is something uh, which we should applaud. But it, there is a cost to it, and it's not certain that the Chinese leadership are willing to absorb that cost. We well, should that see. Well, that's what I was going to uh, uh, suggest. That is this, is this a sustained effort, and are they willing to accept 
you know, slower economic growth, which has been sort of the, you know, the, the you know, their, their main achievement year after year, these very, uh, you know, fast rates of growth. If, are they willing to accept maybe a sustained period of slower growth in return for maybe more financial stability? Yeah. So that's, that's the 64 trillion yuan question <laughs> because, um, on the face of it, and the you know the the rhetoric from party officials and from the central bank is, um, you know, financial stability is like one of our principal um, objectives, and uh, you know we will not go down this route again of uh, using credit to, you know, artificially stimulate the economy because you know it's got a bad ending, and th- so on one level. I think they understand this all too well. On another level, though, um, and of course, everything in China actually is nuanced. Uh, So on another level, we are seeing, you know, the consequences in terms of weaker economic growth and particular in terms of uh, the labor market. So labor market statistics in China, like in most emerging countries, are not really very good. But um, there is quite a lot of anecdotal evidence to suggest that layoffs have picked up that people, some people are kind of returning to the countryside, not in droves as they did in 2007, 2008, but um, but there is a sort of a fragility there. And we have seen some early signs of pushback against the more stern deleveraging policies that were being pursued in 2017 and 18. Is, is, there, is, there, a, is there a growth rate that... Um uh, uh, creates extreme political problems for the Chinese leadership. Is a Chinese economy that's growing, forget about a recession, is a Chinese economy that's growing at 3 or 4%, does that have wider implications than one well, which is growing at 6 or 7%? Does that, be, does that you know, breed any sort of instability? Is their economy built to run very, very fast? And if it's not running very, very fast, the whole thing comes tumbling down. Yeah, I think this is what I would be concerned about, and I think others are too, is is not necessarily that resolving China's debt crisis or debt problem is going to cause banks to go bust and, you know, a repeat of what we experienced ourselves in the West in 2008, 2009. I, that, I think, is, I mean, it's possible, but I think it's unlikely, right? In a state-owned banking system, no major or even medium-sized financial institutions really will be allowed to uh, to go bust or to be found to be short of liquidity. But I think that resolution of excessive debt and uncommercial debt is the same whether, you know, the Communist Party is in charge or a Western government is in charge of its own kind of uh, country, as we saw 10 years ago. And the cost of coming to terms with that kind of policy error um, is really a a protracted period of low growth. I think in the next kind of five to 10 years, China will slow down to something like three or 4%. And I think the problem there is not necessarily the number, but actually what the implications might be for jobs uh, and for the throughput of, you know, about 8 million kind of graduates each year who have to find uh, presumably, we, we want them. You know, we want graduates to find meaningful jobs. Otherwise, they get um, uh, they can be quite become quite restive, and um, and um, you know, obviously, that's got implications for social stability as well. So the the issue really is whether China can adjust. Can, and, well, I think the issue is for me is whether China can fulfil um, its 
its aspirations and and do all the things it wants to do and be all the things it wants to be in an environment where growth uh, for a protracted period of time is going to be much lower um, with consequences for uh, unemployment, which have yet to to show up. Uh, so, so what is the Chinese dream? I mean, what is their goal? What do they want that? What do, what what do they want that country to look like in twenty five years? Well, uh, President Xi Jinping was quite um, uh, open about this at the nineteenth Party Congress in two thousand and seventeen. Um, so, you know, by the middle of the century, so in two thousand forty nine, remember, is the centenary of the founding of the People's Republic. Mm-hmm. So. Um, I mean, they don't say it in these words, but I think, you know, I think they want or he wants China to be effectively a kind of a, a paid up member of the advanced economies by 2049. But in the process of getting there over the next, you know, 32 years or whatever, I think um, they want to be or they want China to become, uh, uh, you know, one of the principal sources and uh, of uh, new technologies. They've identified um, 10 important sectors in a policy document which is known as Made in China 2025, which is the bone of contention for uh, the U.S. Trade Representative and the White House and uh, the U.S. Administration. Um, so uh, in leading to, in electric vehicles, in artificial intelligence, in quantum computing, in, uh, you know, you name it, any of the kind of modern technologies that we're all trying to be top dog in, China wants to be number one, and it wants to not only have a world kind of leadership in these sectors, but also obviously use them as the tool with which to propel higher productivity growth in China and bring uh, prosperity to the country uh, in the longer term. Right. Well, I, I want to explore that, but that also provides a uh, a nice lead into, uh, I think, another one of the red flags, uh, which is the demographic situation. If you're a country uh, that is that is aging, that is not having a lot of kids, then that future growth needs to come from much faster productivity. Though China, I assume, still thinks it can do something uh, on the demographic front to improve sort of current trends. Well, yes, um, they would like to do that. And so far, um, I don't think they are being particularly successful. And I don't think they will be really. Um, and there's nothing sort of specific about China there. I just think the, you know, the demographic problem for all of us really is really what to do about fertility. It's not really about living longer, which is something that we all uh, have to kind of deal with in our individual lives and families. Um, but actually, the, the the economic problem about aging is really that there aren't enough kids growing up to become workers uh, in the future. So there's this squeeze on the working age population, um, which uh, translates, you know, percentage point for percentage point into lower economic growth. Uh, but it also has other issues uh, or other other consequences, which is the affordability of pensions and health care plans and residential care and so on. Um, so China is in a kind of a unique situation um, in the sense that, um, I mean, it's is, it is the fastest aging country on the planet, not the oldest, which is probably Japan, but fastest aging in the sense that China's age structure will shift up in the next 20 or 22 years by as much as it has taken us to do the same sort of shift over the last century. And of course, they're doing it at much lower levels of income per head than 
we have experienced. So by now, when we face our aging problems in the Western world, you know, we have income per capita of between forty and sixty thousand dollars in most countries. China's is about twelve. And um, sure, you know, in the next five, ten, fifteen years, that'll grow. But actually, it's not going to grow quickly enough as a as a benchmark to uh, really um, compensate for the, the the burden of providing for an aging society, um, which uh, which I think is coming at them very very quickly indeed. So ideally, they should. Uh, widen, deepen, make more generous the social safety net, uh, particularly for pensions, uh, the treatment of migrant workers, um, healthcare expenditure, because a lot of Chinese, although there is universal healthcare, um, uh, there are a lot of out-of-pocket expenses which the Chinese, typical Chinese families have to meet uh, for their healthcare. So th- this is a charge on growth as well. So it's another reason why I think um, China will be challenged in the future to sustain these very, very elevated rates of economic expansion, which uh, are probably um, not quite as as elevated as official figures would have us believe anyway. Could you see a scenario where China becomes as wealthy on a per capita basis as even, uh, forget about the United States or Scandinavia or Canada, but let's say uh, the Eastern European countries? Well, of course, uh, you know, it's fair to point out that there is no such thing uh, as a sort of a, you know, a a, a kind of a a black and white picture of of China. I mean, China is a huge country, 1.4 billion people um, in coastal provinces and big coastal cities. Income per head is already, you know, on a a par with countries like Portugal, for example. Whereas, of course, in the middle of the country and in the western part of the country and in the uh, northeastern part of the country, which is where a lot of the China's heavy industry is concentrated, um, income per head is uh, is much lower. Um, so I can see that there will be provinces or cities maybe in the future which will uh, certainly be also RANs, you know, when it comes to kind of OECD type of comparisons. But I must say... In the foreseeable future, I mean, we'll never say never, but in the foreseeable future, I don't really see um, parity being reached, um, you know, from if you look at China on average. By the way, there's another issue which I think is kind of interesting to to bring up here, uh, particularly given the sort of narratives that sometimes we're asked to believe about China either being or, or perhaps within the next 10 years being the biggest economy in the world in U.S. dollar terms. And people do this, you know, I think because um, part, partly because it's the sort of part of the narrative which I think China would like us to, to believe, and partly because they just use spreadsheets from the last 35 years or 40 years and just project them into the future as though nothing's changing. But um, one of the traps I also talk about in the book, actually, is the renminbi trap. And let's suppose that the renminbi uh, devalues some point in the next five years by a meaningful amount. Um, so if the peg breaks, let's say, the history of or the empirical uh, work on pegs suggests that usually when that happens, you know, you don't get a kind of a five or a 10 percent depreciation, but it can be 20 percent, 30 percent, sometimes more. Um, 
that impact on China's, uh, the dollar value of China's GDP could well mean that by 2025 or 2030, that China's GDP in dollar terms will not be that much different relative to the United States than it is today. So I, I don't think it's a foregone conclusion at all. Why would that peg break? Well, because I think that it, and this harks back to the, the debt problem in a way, because one of the phenomena that is uh, continuing in China, despite the deleveraging policies, is the growth in financial system assets and liabilities. So not just banks, but also what we call non-banking financial institutions. So this would include insurance companies, uh, trust banks, um, and uh, other you know, institutions that are that exist within the shadow banking sector, shall we say? Um, so, if you if you look at the growth of the total assets and liabilities in the financial system, they're growing at a pace which is not really compatible with two other phenomena. One is the existence of the peg, and the other is the limited level of currency reserves. Now, true, China does have $3 trillion worth of foreign exchange reserves, although not all of those $3 trillion are liquid. But let's say two-thirds of them are liquid reserves. It wouldn't take much in the way of capital flight um, emanating from the excess growth of financial system assets and liabilities to basically put the peg under pressure if the reserves uh, actually started to fall. So, I think if if China were to really clamp down uh, very very seriously on uh, on leverage and on the growth of banking or financial system uh, liquidity, I think um, this, the outlook would be very different in terms of its external um, stability. But of course, there would be a cost in terms of domestic growth. But failing that, I think that the that there is a kind of a, an inconsistency between the growth of financial assets and liabilities in renminbi terms at home and the existence of a peg which has got to be very carefully managed in conjunction with a limited level of reserves. If the reserves were growing at $500 billion a year, no problem at all, but the, it, they're out of kilter. And so eventually, I think it'll be swamped by um, the outflow of, uh, of capital, despite the existence of capital controls. Uh, as you mentioned earlier, and I want to make sure we got back to it, uh, since it's really key uh, to the you know, country's economic future, which is uh, becoming more technologically advanced, more innovative. Can China do that without, from a purely sort of top-down, government-direct-where subsidies go sort of growth model? Or do they need to adapt a more American-like growth model? Granted, China has some has developed some very you know big sort of global brands, but can China get to where it wants to be technologically with a, with a kind of a subsidy more, you know, not to take it too far, command and control model? Or, or we'll put it this way, from, with a top-down model versus kind of more organic growth like you see in the United States. Right. So here's another 64 trillion yuan question. Because We're we hitting them all. <laughs> we don't really know the answer to that question. And, and I think it is a, it's a question which preoccupies, um, you know, think tanks and policymakers and uh, analysts all over the world, which is we know that in the West, you know, we're in a bit of a bunker. 
following uh, the crisis 10 or 11 years ago and we are asking questions of our politicians uh, or the politicians are certainly asking questions about whether there might be a different way of doing things where you know the balance between the private sector and um, the role of government you know might be different from the way we've thought about it in the past but by the same token uh, Jim you know I think in China the the same issues uh, exist there and in fact Despite the fact that we think that, you know, the biggest issue in sort of Sino-Western relations nowadays is trade, in China, they also are having a big discussion about the role of the private sector and about the role of the state. So during the last year, I think it's kind of interesting because there hasn't really been any opposition or disquiet about Xi Jinping uh, since he came to power in 2012. But it's no coincidence, I think, in my mind, that during the last 12 to 15 months, there have been a number of instances where uh, leading intellectuals and professors have had work published uh, long enough for uh, you know foreigners to translate it before it's been taken down from the Chinese web, um, where they've questioned the path that the Communist Party is is uh, treading down. So the you know the the party view is that China's success is attributable to the role of the party, the role of industrial policy, and state direction of. Um, the economy and of technology. And the dissenting view is that actually this is uh, not the basis for China's success at all. And then, in fact, all the success that China has had over the last 40 years, in fact, since Deng Xiaoping came to power in 1978, um, is basically down to entrepreneurship to what the Chinese call marketization, which is really the incorporation of market mechanisms into the state system, and to learning from the outside world about how to adapt um, foreign innovation and um, technology for the domestic Chinese economy and markets. So this is, I think, kind of an interesting discussion because we think sometimes, and and obviously the narrative from the from the from beijing is that you know we think we have a different model which is better to yours and you know state direction and subsidies and industrial policy is the way to go well it might be i think in terms of sort of specific scientific and technological accomplishments and let's not be churlish about it because you know sending a spacecraft to the other you know to the dark side of the moon or the far side of the moon and um you know being big in e-commerce and uh, quantum computing and biomeds and all of these things uh you know we shouldn't be slouches about this these are things that the chinese are very good at and are, are very accomplished but there's more, I think, to uh, breaking, you know, the technological barriers in the future, particularly commercializing the technology, establishing brands in technologies, using those technologies to spawn multiple innovations across industrial sectors that you can't plan for or or determine top down. I, I still think, you know, I'm a Western trained economist, so right. I would say this, wouldn't I? But I still think that this is uh, this is a strength that we still have, I think, and which I think China will find that it, it runs up short. And I think that the the stifling of initiative, the uh, aversion to instability, and what we would call creative destruction. These kinds of things, I think, are n- not necessarily uh, issues that will, you know, keep China kind of stuck in the mud, as it were. But I think that, um, in many respects, I think there the the lead that you know Western 
technologies and companies still have over China, I think will be quite difficult to eradicate altogether. But is, is it the case then that Beijing believes a, a more open economy, uh, a more entrepreneurial economy, a less state-directed economy is just fundamentally incompatible with a political system that's authoritarian at best. You can't, that it sort of needs to believe this model, that their alternate model works, because if it doesn't, that more open Western model are, are, you know, inside that model are the seeds for the demise of the Chinese Communist Party as, as, as the, as the leading force in that society. Yeah, and I think I'm actually I'm actually think that's that's precisely the point. Um, so um, you know there are uh, there have been you know during the last year there have been sort of party officials that have spoken about you know the private sector having already accomplished its historic mission, uh, which is a sort of a, a veiled or not so veiled allusion to the fact of you know they've done their bit. You know the the state sector is really the only thing that's important now. Um, there's certainly been no hiding. Um, the uh, wishes of the leadership um, to make the the state sector and state enterprises, you know, to, to, to give them the primacy in the economy and the put them in the forefront of leadership when it comes to uh, technological accomplishment and um, the future prosperity of of China. I mean, I don't think there's any um, beating around the bush there. I think they they honestly believe that this is the case, and I think they, as you suggested, really implicitly um, think. I think they believe that actually, if they opened up too far and too fast um, to what you know a lot of Westerners and you know governments would like the Chinese to do, I think they think that that would be existential for them because it would. Um, it would start to threaten um, the basis of uh, the raison d'etre for the Communist Party, which is to rule unchallenged and not to have, you know, um, private enterprise or, I mean, controlled private enterprise, but not having, you know, private initiative and private enterprise uh, challenge the the role of of the government and of the party. But is it equally existential if there, if, if the West tries to, to separate itself from China, that we have this, I think you may have called it this iron curtain of technology where you have these two different tech ecosystems because the West is so worried either about uh, Chinese advances for national security purposes, uh, worry about you know spying on the United States, or we just fear an advanced China. So we're trying to suppress their technological advance by creating a, an ecosystem, by uh, not letting their companies participate in our economies. Is that also a threat uh, to China's advance, if if we just sort of try to you know uh, uh, create again create this iron curtain or bubble around the Chinese uh, economy, yeah, I mean, I it, it's something that I don't kind of think about with any kind of relish at all. I mean, I think it's it's a sort of a it, it's a lose lose um, uh, situation. I, I think they relish it in the White House. Well, maybe. <laughs> I mean, I, some may do. Um, I mean, I think that it's. The relationship, you know, particularly, I think, between the United States and China, of course, is so fundamentally different than it was between the United States and the the former Soviet Union, Um, because the the levels of interdependence between between the economic systems and the trading systems of China and the United States is is on a you know is on a is a different world from from what it was with the with the the old USSR. So 
ideally, and I suppose I, I'd like to think about this slightly optimistically, although you know maybe maybe naively, I'm not sure. But I think that um, that level of interdependence is a it's kind of a good thing, despite the spat that we're all having at the moment about you know trade and Huawei and goodness knows what else. But I think it creates a sort of a platform uh, on top of which, you know, hopefully the two um, uh, governments, maybe not these governments, but future governments as well, um, you know, despite difficult times and sometimes, you know, having, you know, spats can actually try to figure out a kind of a some way of uh, living together, even if uh, so, you know, the, the dearest wishes of both sides, you know, can't be fulfilled altogether. So there are a lot of things, for example, that I think China could offer to the US and to uh, the European and other Western business communities, which will not cost the Communist Party much in terms of its, you know, credibility of authority. So, you know, market access is one of the big issues uh, which uh, is uh, figures in, in um, uh, negotiations. Um, the levels of, you know, very, very high levels of automobile tariffs is another issue. Um, the uh, what to do about joint ventures and technology transfer and intellectual property protection. I mean, th there are many things that I think that China might do in its own interest provided it could do so without being seen to be succumbing to foreign pressure, which, of course, is very sensitive for them. Um, so I, I do if, think if you, if you, if you, I mean, if you were in the White House, would you would you object or try to prevent Chinese companies from uh, uh, from creating key elements of you know, you know, the Internet backbone, the 5G backbone? Would you want them not to be involved in the in the in, the, in those sorts of projects? OK, so I'm I'm not expert enough to know where the dividing line is between genuine threat to security and fear of technological competition. I mean, if we right. if we're trying to stop Chinese companies doing things because we don't think that we can compete with them, um, actually, I don't think that's good for either side. It's obviously not good for the Chinese because they'll be restricted and they'll get quite you know touchy about it. It's not good for us because actually we need to be good at things and need to spend you know resources, money. Uh, education to try to um, um, you know to to retain a sort of number one position that we think we want. Um, but if there are genuine security issues, and I think that these have been voiced and aired in conjunction with both um, you know well ZTE Corporation, which was uh, the subject of uh, dispute you know last year, and uh, Huawei currently, if if there are security issues, then I think we do have to uh, be very careful because you know China is not just a kind of any old feisty competitor that we do business with. It's um it is an adversary. It has a political system that you know is fundamentally different from one that we believe is is acceptable. Uh, and um, China is obviously, you know, the only major country in the world that can seek to kind of peddle its soft power and influence in foreign countries where we want to compete as well. So I think um, I think it's I think it's a fair point that if you, uh, you know, you we should draw the line where we think that unfair advantages are uh, at work, which would give um uh, a foreign country, in this case China, um, uh, an ability to basically evade or undermine things that we think are really valuable. But, you know, that's a big judgment call. My guest today has been George Magnus, author of the new book, Red Flags, Why Xi's China is in Jeopardy. George, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks very much, Jim.